When life is hard and things aren't going as well as we would like, there are still things to celebrate and to find joy in. God has worked. Rejoice in what he has done. Well, hello and welcome to the Gospel Chapel podcast, our weekly sermons uh, from Gospel Chapel being posted here for you to enjoy. We are almost halfway done the Gospel Project from Lifeway Publishing. Now, the Gospel Project is a three-year through the Bible curriculum uh, that we're following on Sunday morning. Our Sunday school classes are um, using that material uh, for our children. As well, we have the daily discipleship guides that you can take home uh, so that you can dig further into God's Word uh, using uh, that material. And uh, all of it kind of is based around what Jesus said at the end of Luke uh, in chapter 24, verses 25 to um, 27. Uh, Jesus meets these disciples on the road to Emmaus and they're totally... Uh, deflated because they watched Jesus die. They heard from some people that there was a resurrection, but they still didn't really believe what was going on. And so Jesus comes and they don't recognize who he is. And he says to them, and this is verse 25 of Luke 24, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Every passage of scripture that we're looking at points us to Jesus. And so may this message today turn your heart toward him. The hardest part of the job is... Starting? Finish. What's the hardest part of the job for you? Is it starting or finishing? Which, which one is the hardest for you? So for some it's starting, it's just, just getting the thing going, right? For others it's pushing through to the end, right? Well, in 2003, <coughs> Sarah and I with a five-month-old car, moved from Edmonton to Surrey and later into Mission so that I could attend Acts seminaries. And attending classes, reading and researching, writing papers and all that was really easy for me. You had a specific start date and an end date every semester, right? Like, this is the end of the semester, this is the deadline for when you have to have everything handed in. Great, I'm good with that. However, one of the main degree requirements for a master's in theological studies is this thing called a thesis. Written, defended, finished. <clears throat> it would be April 2nd, 2015, before that requirement was completed. So you can think 2003, 2015. There you go. It's a two-year degree. It's supposed to be. If you do the math, that means car is now 12. We added four more kids along the way. I was now the solo pastor in our church at Mission, and I really didn't see any connection between this research project and the task in front of me. I considered simply dropping it all together. I wanted to quit and not finish it. But Sarah was rather insistent that that not happen. Where are you, dear? <laughs> It was not an option 
in the fall of 2014, I had all the chapters written except the last conclusion, and I had stalled out again. Around the beginning of December, I was discussing this with someone in our church, and he just flat out said, what are you waiting for? Just sit down this afternoon, write the conclusion, and be done with it. So on that Sunday evening, I went back to the office in about two hours, wrote the conclusion, submitted it to my professor, and his response was this. Well, here's a few edits on this, but this looks great. Let's get the oral defense scheduled and be done with this. I was like, really? You know, once you finish something, it's kind of like you, you almost enter a bit of an identity crisis. <laughs> Let's get this done. So over the next few months, there was two other experts, you know, two, two other professors who had to read through it, comment on it, challenge my thinking. And I had to read and reread both my own work and my research trail so that I could present and def defend well in an oral defense. And that was all easy compared to facing my own hesitations and misgivings about what I was doing and the value of it. But finally, it was finished. Sarah didn't allow me to quit. A friend encouraged me to just get it done. My professor actually encouraged me a lot during the whole process and really enjoyed what I had done. The oral examination was great. It was challenging, but it felt more like a conversation among equals than by a grilling of those with higher education than I. Sometimes the hardest part of the job is getting it done. And along the way, we need people around us to prod us, to encourage us, to simply hold us accountable, to finish the job. Sometimes there are external pressures in life and realities that slow us down, and other times we just get in our own way too much. That was my problem. For those who returned from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, things were similar. There was a lot of external pressures. There was opposition, as well as a personal need to just rebuild houses, replant fields, make a living in Judah viable again. Several factors that would distract them from completing the task that God had called them to, which is why God would then send Haggai and Zechariah and why God moved in the hearts of various pagan kings in order that provision for the project be completed. Sometimes the hardest part of the job is finishing it, and we need some encouragement to get it done. We're gonna be in Ezra chapter really uh, five, beginning of five, and then into chapter six a little bit today. Um, so if you wanna turn there, I'm gonna start just with Ezra chapter four, verses 24 to five, two. It'd be great if you could look at this as I read it. <clears throat> Ezra chapter 4, verse 24 to 5 and verse 2. This comes after a, a lot of back and forth stuff has been going on. Uh, there was opposition to the rebuilding of the temple, so a bunch of, uh, bunch of opponents sent a letter to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes says, yeah, this is we shouldn't let them do this. So he sends a letter back and, and he gives them permission to stop, uh, stop the people of, of Israel from building the temple. So the work stops. And then this is what happened next. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. 
Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. And so this is kind of under, under the, the first point here we're going to look at is the people are moved to obedience because of divine encouragement. The people obey because of divine encouragement. First, let's recognize there's a pretty significant time gap here. It's a pretty significant time gap. The, the, the go back to verse 24 in chapter 4 and circle that very first comma. That comma is worth 15 years of time. Pretty big comma. It took two years from the return from Babylon of the events and, uh, to, to get to the events in Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3 is the dedication of the altar, and the, they kind of cleared the, cleared the way, and they rededicated the foundations of the temple, but that's kind of where it stopped. They got the altar going, and they got the foundations ready. And then there was opposition, letters sent back and forth between Judah and Babylon, and there's no email in those days, so it's like, okay, uh, Joe, here's the letter, you take it and ride a horse or a camel or something all the way back to Susa, and that's a few months, and then all the way back, you know, and communication was a little slower then. But the work was stopped. Under Artaxerxes, the work stopped. It's now the second year of Darius, and this isn't the same Darius as in Daniel, different Darius. The work of rebuilding stopped, and for about 15 years, nothing happened. And then there was a change of kingship. Artaxerxes is gone. Darius is on the throne. Two years into his reign, the work begins again. And in this time, God raises up Haggai and Zechariah now, we have this all kind of over here in our Bibles. You've got Haggai and Zechariah way over here. And if you look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, he says, the second year of Darius, king of Persia. And so that drops right in here in Ezra. So, you know, we've split these up. But really, Haggai and Zechariah fit right in this moment in Ezra and what they said and how they encouraged the people to build, get back to rebuilding the temple. Now, I want us to focus a moment at, the, uh, at this one verse, actually the last phrase in chapter 5 and verse 2 of Ezra. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, or Joshua, son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And this is the key here. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The prophets of God were with them, supporting them. God sent Haggai and Zechariah not just to speak his word to the people, but to be with them and to support them and encourage them in the work. You know, often we think of the prophet as some kind of weird guy in weird clothes who's kind of, you know, he's got messy hair and he just kind of comes in and he goes, thus says the Lord, and then he disappears. You know, and it's just kind of these whacked people. But here, these guys spend time they are invested in the life of the people. They, yes, they speak the word of God with clarity and with passion and with purpose, but they don't just show up and announce the message of God and disappear. They're personally involved with the people to whom God sends them. And this is exactly what the people needed. 
They needed divine encouragement they, that, that came from leaders who walked with them. And don't we always need that kind of encouragement to keep going? So getting the job done's easier when there's a companion or two on the journey. And obedience becomes something we do together. Communities needed to support us in following Jesus and walking in obedience to his will and his word. Discipleship was never meant to be a solo sport. It's always a team effort. We need community to follow Jesus, but we also need the clarity of his word spoken into our lives, and that's what the prophets do, and that's what the word of God does for us. And that's what we can do for one another around the word of God. God says, hey guys, Zechariah, to speak, to challenge, to encourage his people to overcome their fears and the opposition and get back on his mission that he has appointed for them. They needed the word of God and they needed it in community. And so do we. So question for you. Where do you need divine encouragement to continue in obedience to the path that God has laid out for you in this season of your life? And who is in your life that can speak God's truth to your situation and also call you to obedience, hold you accountable? Are you spending time in God's word and in prayer in a posture of listening so that you can hear the voice of God speaking to your situation and your struggle and the mission that he has for you? I think many of us are feeling tired and worn down and this is where we need the divine encouragement from the word of God. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 8 says this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This is what God's word purposes to do for us. Revive our souls, make us wise, plant joy in our hearts, and open our eyes to see what God is up to around us. And so the people obey because of divine encouragement. Because God spoke the word to them through his people. And God's word is there to support us and hold us together as we come around his word in community. We flip over a few pages. We get to the temple is finished and it's dedicated. God, God called Haggai and Zechariah together. They, they get started, the things keep going, and the rebuilding starts happening. And then the people succeed because of divine intervention. This is our second point. The people succeed because of divine intervention. Listen to this. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province of beyond the river, Shethar Bozenai, Bonsai, Zamboni, um, <laughs> their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king ordered and the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah son of Iddo. I wonder who Haggai's dad was because Zechariah always seems to have to be introduced with it. His dad was Iddo. We don't know who this guy was. Anyway, total aside. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel 
and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, the king. So there was opposition to, to God's purposes and they were overcome and, and redirected. And those who sought to hinder the rebuilding of the temple ended up being commanded to actually fund it. If we go back into chapter 6, and there's, there's a whole lot we could look at here, but there's these letters that go back and forth between opponents, and they're like, hey, we've heard that they, they're claiming that Cyrus gave a decree for this. Can you check in the records, make sure that that's true? So Darius goes and he checks the records, and they find out, yes, Cyrus did order this temple rebuilt, therefore here's what you need to do. And he says, you've got to actually help them do this. You've got to provide for it. And if you look down at verse 12, Darius ends the whole letter of, hey, encourage these guys to complete this temple. He says this. This is King Darius, pagan king. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. So on a human level, on a human level, we can look at this story and see that Darius received this report that the temple was being rebuilt. They got clarification that it was a royal command. They found the decree of Cyrus in the archives. Darius upholds and strengthens the decree. On a human level, it seems this is a matter of good politics and following through with a, a decree of the king. But the biblical author sees it through a different lens. The biblical author sees God's hand at work, even in the policies and practices of pagan kings who now rule Judah and Jerusalem. The work is completed by the decree of God first, and by the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. God is at work because as we learned when we looked at the book of Daniel a while back, God is in control of who is in control. Regardless of the king's purposes, their paganism and their polytheism, God works through them for his purposes and the good of his people and his mission. They succeed because of divine intervention, because God is at work behind the scenes in all of this. But notice that it also takes time. When God moves, it doesn't mean everything happens quickly. According to our timeline, this takes time. Notice in verse 24, the project started uh, back in 424. The project was restarted the second year of Darius, and it's now year six. Again, we've, we've had four years and we flipped one page. It takes time. Success is not always immediate. And sometimes... We must patiently keep on going with what God has put before us before the project is ever close to completion. Remember, God is never in a rush. His purposes maybe extend far beyond your involvement or your lifetime. God calls us to be faithful to him and his word and his leading in our time with what we can do. He alone has the larger picture of the purposes he is calling us into today. There may be events and decisions and investments or directions that we don't fully understand now, but when we look back later, we'll see the hand of God. 
See, God gave the people of Israel a purpose, rebuild my temple. He didn't give them a deadline. That was pretty open-ended. Just rebuild my temple. And God gives us a purpose, not necessarily a deadline. The people that left Babylon to rebuild the temple, if we add up all the gaps since Ezra chapter 1, are finally seeing the rebuilt project come to completion more than 20 years later. Sometimes it takes time. And even when we have God's intervention, and even when God sends us clarity of his word, it takes time and patience and persistence. And sometimes there's pauses along the way. Notice also, God didn't send Haggai and Zechariah year one either. They show up in year 15. So God is patient, so patient with us. And he sends his word and his encouragement and his intervention at just the right time. And then, to round this off, the people rejoice because of divine sovereignty. Let's continue reading at verse 16 of Ezra chapter 6 to the end of the chapter. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400, uh, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Now remember, we're only in Ezra chapter 6. Ezra and Nehemiah is actually one book and one whole story. The story's still unfolding, and life isn't all smooth, and it's not finished yet. The, yes, the temple's been rebuilt, uh, worship's been reestablished, but the city's still in ruins. The walls have yet to be rebuilt. They're in ruins. The reality of the destruction 70 years ago is evident all around them, and life is not easy for them. But that doesn't mean that God just keeps pushing them to do better and to do more. Along the way, he makes room for celebration and for feasting and for rejoicing. When life is hard and things aren't going as well as we would like, there are still things to celebrate and to find joy in. God has worked. Rejoice in what he has done. 
God called his people to a specific task and God moved the hearts of the kings so that the work would be done and done well. God is in control, remember, so rejoice. For the Lord had made them joyful. The Lord had made them joyful. And he had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them and so he, that king, aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. But again, life wasn't now smooth sailing. But they rejoiced in the midst of it. Even though you may be facing some difficult issues in life right now, where is the joy? Where can you rejoice? What can you rejoice in? And what can you give thanks for? Hear these words of Scripture today. 2 Corinthians 4, 13-18 Since we have, since we have, this is something we have, the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In Psalm 16, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, nor take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God encouraged his people through his word in the presence of his prophets so that they could obey him. God intervenes for his people by moving the heart of the king, and so they succeeded. And God is sovereign over his people so that they could rejoice. And for us today, Jesus Christ is the center and the source of our obedience, our success, and our joy. 
In Jesus, we have greater resources, the resource of his abiding presence with us. He is the word made flesh. He has intervened fully and finally for our eternal success. And he is the sovereign king, name above all names. And in him, we rejoice deeply in the face of the trials, the conflicts, and the pains of life. And Jesus calls us to abide in him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Our obedience, our success, and our joy are completely dependent on the life-giving presence of Jesus Christ. So how can we effectively and practically abide in Christ as he calls us to in John chapter 15? Three steps we need to make. First, we need to recognize admit, and admit we cannot graft ourselves into the vine of Christ who gives us life. It's the image that Jesus uses in John 15. I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do no good thing. We must be grafted into his life by a divine work of grace. Apart from that, apart from his sovereign acting on our behalf, we're dead in transgressions and sins, Ephesians 2.1, separated from the life of God. This requires we surrender our dead and broken lives to Jesus. And today, maybe you just need to wave the white flag of surrender and give up trying to clean up or improve or repair your broken life because you can't do it. You need the life of Christ. So first, recognize and admit we cannot, cannot have the life we want without Christ. Secondly, even when we have done that, we need to continually to surrender to his lordship over our lives, walking in continual repentance, knowing that our sinful and selfish tendency is to use God to get what we want in life. But abiding in him means recognizing that our life comes from him and he guides and directs us to what is fulfilling. And the question we need to ask ourselves in both of these cases is what am I trying to do? Or where am I trying to run? How am I trying to live my life so that I can hide from God and others? We need to admit our lives get out of control sometimes and we can't manage them. And we need to continually to surrender to Jesus. See, I think abiding requires abandoning. Abiding requires abandoning. We've got to let go of the control. We've got to let go of trying to fix ourselves. And we've got to let God do his work. First, recognize that we cannot graft ourselves into the vine and the life of Christ. Second, continually surrender to his lordship in our lives. And three, remain connected to him daily. Remain connected to him daily. The people of God had to have, God had to send Haggai and Zechariah, two prophets, to speak the word and to encourage and to be with his people. And he had to move the heart of the king. Remain connected to Christ daily, so some questions to ask yourself. What is feeding my heart and my mind and my soul? And here's a ground-level application for you. 
Track the time you're spending searching and reposting memes or YouTube videos that support your views and redirect all of that attention to the words of Jesus in the Gospels. And if you're not online and you don't do that kind of thing, then just evaluate where are you spending your time? What are you watching? What are you reading? And what are you doing for hobbies? And are they pushing you towards deep health or are they distracting you from your pain? I'm not saying we all have to become hermits and just study the Bible all day in a closet somewhere, but seriously ask yourself what's truly feeding your heart and soul, and is it leading you to a life of true freedom and joy and flourishing in the fruit of the Spirit, or are you becoming more anxious and angry and defensive and polarized? What's going on in your heart? Does it reflect the character of Christ or the spirit of the age? Does it reflect the fruit of the sinful nature or the fruit of the spirit? It's an either-or option, not both and. There's no gray area. We're either living in the sinful nature and reaping the fruit of that, or we're living in the spirit, and his fruit will be born in our lives. It's a matter of where you're spending your time and your attention. John Piper, in his book, What Jesus Demands of the World, had this to say, and I think this is a great concluding thought. Jesus' solution to our love affair with sin is not merely that we tear out our sin-loving eyes, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 29, but that we be mastered by joy in a new reality, namely God. That we be mastered by joy in a new reality, namely God. God. See, obedience to God and his word and his spirit's leading leads us to success from God in the things that he has called us to, which leads us to joy in God in everything that he does in our lives. Kind of a progression, obedience to success to joy, and it's all because God works and God speaks and God leads. Jesus' solution to our love affair with sin is not merely that we tear out our sin-loving eyes, but that we be mastered by joy in a new reality, namely God. Let's pray. Lord, there was every reason to just leave that temple in ruins. There was other things that pressed on everybody's priorities. There was building their own houses, getting fields back. Um, defensively, they were open to attack from anyone, really. Coming back from exile wasn't coming back to a land of abundance and beauty. It was coming back to a, a land of desolation and destruction. Lord, in our hearts and lives, there may be areas of desolation and destruction, and we've been avoiding those things. We've not wanted to go back into those areas of our lives where there's rubble and ruin, because we know it's a lot of hard work, and it means facing the pain of the past.
So Lord, may your word encourage us to, to take a step back to the places where we need to go and rebuild wherever we're at in life. Help us to surrender our need for control. Help us to surrender the emptiness that we feel so that we can be filled by you. And Lord, in the midst of maybe encountering some tough stuff in life, help us to find the joy that you bring in the midst of those times. Even as these people finally dedicated a temple, they were still standing amid a, a city in ruins and rubble and life wasn't easy and yet you created joy in their hearts. You gave them joy in the moment. And so Lord, for every step of obedience and every small success that we may come to in our lives because of walking in obedience to you. Help us to rejoice in what you're doing. The Lord, open us to the fact that we need to lay down our messy lives at your feet and allow you to bring your word and bring your provision into those areas that need rebuilding so that we can enter the joy that you have for us. So Lord, give us courage and give us strength as we pursue you and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.